Peter Denica was a Russian immigrant who fled Russia to America in the year 1914. He wanted to escape the communist revolution that was taking place. So his, um, his mom bought him a ticket to get on a ship and come to America. And shortly after arriving, he landed in Chicago eventually, and he became a Christian and went on to become just a powerful evangelist for Jesus, uh, not reaching not only people in America, but back in his native uh, home country of Russia. And he was so powerful in his ministry that he earned the nickname Peter Dynamite. And he was, he was known for that around the world, just spreading the gospel of Jesus. But he tells a story in his autobiography of, of when he was traveling to America. Like I said, his mom bought him the ticket and just packed a knapsack with just a few clothes, some stale bread and some cheese, and put him on the ship. And back, back in 1914, it was like a long journey to get from Russia to the U.S. by ship. And, and he says after a few days, his, his bread got moldy and his cheese ran out, and he just longed to eat the food of the people that he would watch in, in the dining hall. And after a while, some of the sailors on the ship said that, you know, if you help us with our work, we'll, we'll give you some of our food. And so he agreed to that, would labor alongside the sailors for their meager rations of this porridge and this hard biscuit, hardtack stuff that sailors would eat. And then he said it wasn't until the last day of his voyage that he realized that three meals a day came with his ticket. And he said because he couldn't read English, he didn't know what was entitled to him with the purchase of that ticket. You know, today we are in Romans chapter 8, and it reminds me that many Christians live out their spiritual journey without fully knowing what is ours in Christ. You know, we know that receiving Christ brings salvation, but we don't fully grasp all that's, all that's given us, all that's included in the price that Christ paid for, on our behalf. So we cut ourselves short. We, we, we go through life thinking that, that our salvation is just a ticket from point A to point B. Well, our passage today helps us understand fully not only the, Christ, the price that Christ paid, but what is ours as a result. Today, you know, we're continuing our series through Romans, and we, we're kind of at the halfway point of the 16 chapters. We wrap up chapter 8 today, and this is our third week in, in this chapter alone, and really we could spend six months going through the book of Romans and only cover half of it. Uh, but, but I love it that we are preaching through, you know, an entire book of the Bible like this, just working through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because as we do so, we're able to see the big picture of God's theme throughout the book, and we're able to see that all of Scripture eventually points us to Jesus. That's why we're committed to preaching through books of the Bible like this and, and, um, or large chunks of Scripture. Because the better that we know the Word of God, the more likely we are to be transformed by the Word of God. Well, chapter 8 is a great chapter because it has two bookends, really, that, that frame the whole chapter. At the beginning, in verse 1, uh, we learn that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
Now as we come to the end of the chapter, we see that there is no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ. So in between the, these two bookends of no condemnation and, and no separation, there's two themes that we've looked at. There's life in the, in the Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works in us and through us. And there's also this theme of suffering. And that's kind of the part that we'd like to forget or skip over. But in, in the midst of all of those things, there's a theme of assurance. Assurance of where we stand in Christ. Now our author, the Apostle Paul, he, he could have ended this chapter a few verses earlier uh, on a high note and ended with a discussion about the Holy Spirit working in us. But the Apostle Paul, I've learned, has this habit of like erupting into spontaneous praise in his letters. He'll, he'll go through the doctrine, he'll go through the teaching, and then he's like, he hits the pause button and he just has to exude the praises of Jesus Christ and who God is. Well, the, our section today is one of those uh, times where he just breaks out in praise and just he can't can't contain himself. And it's a great section of praise declaring all that we have because of the price that Christ paid. So I just want to give you the bottom line up front this morning, and that's this. We have an unbreakable tie to Christ. And Paul drives, it, drives that home by asking some rhetorical questions in verses 31 through 39 of chapter 8. And as a rhetorical question, all of these have the answer no or nothing, and all of which drive home this bottom line of our unbreakable tie, our unbreakable connection to Jesus Christ. So the first question that he asks is, why fear opposition? Why fear opposition? In verse 31 of chapter 8, he says this, what, sh what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Paul is basically summarizing, when he, when he says these things, he's saying all the stuff that we've talked about. In verses 1 through the earlier part of chapter 8, he's summing up all of these things. He's, when he's talked about the gospel, the role of the Holy Spirit, and how that changes us, what can we say to all of that? Well, if God's for us, nothing can stop God's purposes. Nothing can oppose the purpose and plan of our Father. Now, what I love about Paul is, is he doesn't like gloss things over or, or try to ignore things. He's saying, you know, that yes, the forces and struggles that we face, they are real, they are big, and they can feel very daunting at times. You know, and, and you might be thinking, well, who can be against me? Uh, let me tell you, you know, try a bad boss or an antagonistic spouse or our own inward struggles, our battles with sin or lust or addictions, about financial problems, struggles with chronic health problems, difficult children, and on and on we can make the list go about our own struggles. And there's sometimes that just... There's so much of life that just come before us and we see the wall, we see the opposition, we see the struggles. But I think Paul is saying, that he wants us to hear this, that our God is bigger. And if you're unsure about that, just go back and read Romans again. And as you read it again, you begin to see just how big our God is. You know, like a lot of kids growing up, 
When, when I was young, I assumed my dad was the smartest, strongest man alive. You know, if, I, if something would break, he could fix anything. It might not look good when it's done, but he could fix it. You know, he duct tape and wire and clamps were his favorite tools in the shed. And he would, he would utilize that stuff and, and get it done. He was the kind of dad, he taught me how to build a fire, taught me how to set up a tent. He gave me my first pocket knife, which was super cool because it had a spoon and a fork attached to it, you know. <laughs> he taught me how to whittle wood without cutting my finger off, you know, just this great dad stuff. And I felt safe around my dad. Not because I never faced dangers, those were real, that kid stuff that come along in life, but I just assumed in my mind my dad was bigger than any of the problems that I would face. And if I ever got in a jam, you know, my dad would get me out. And as I got older, he got me out of plenty of jams. You know, but the way we remove fear in our life is not to isolate ourselves, is not to live in a bubble not, not to remove ourselves from, from the world, because that's impossible. We remove fear by simply understanding who our Father is, who our Heavenly Father. By believing in His promises, the promises of God, we understand He is bigger and better than any dangers or opposition that the world will throw at us. And we overcome those fears by keeping in close proximity to the Father. You know, we see this in the life of King David. King David penned the 23rd Psalm, probably one of the, the most well-known verses, passages of Scripture. And he felt the proximity and the reality of life's opposition, a big one that we all face, death. So in the fourth verse of Psalm 23, he writes these words, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, the valley of the shadow of death, that does not sound like a great place to hang out. You know, it's not, not the trendy vacation locale to go to. You know, it'd be, the, it'd be a great title for a Stephen King novel. It's just not a place that you want to go. And for many folks, our strategy is just to stay as far away from the valley of shadow of death as possible. But you know what? What I love about King David is he's very real with his emotions, very real with life situations that he faces. And he, he knows that sooner or later we all go through it and we get closer to it every day of our own life. We have family members that have gone through it or are going through it. And each day we wake up and re we realize that, yep, that is inevitable. But David is saying that we can walk through those difficult times. And I, I don't know anything more difficult for a family or person to go through than, than the death of a loved one. Because nothing like that will rattle your world and shake your foundation as death. But David says, I can go through a season like that in life because I know I'm not there alone. That God, you are with me and you, God, are stronger than anything that we will face in that valley. So what this means is that God allows us to face the future with all of its struggles, with all of its hardships, with the opposition that we face. We can face it without ultimate fear 
because that we know that we have a big God behind us. He is for us. And He's stronger and smarter and bigger and bolder than anything that the world can throw at us. Well, that leads us to the second question that he asks in these closing verses of chapter 8. And that question is, why worry about God's care for us? Verse 32 of chapter 8 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The value of something is really seen in the price that's paid for it. You know, it's only, only worth what someone is willing to pay for. It's kind of like the, the eBay rule. You might have something sitting around your house that you think is invaluable, you know, this treasured possession. So you're going to experiment and find out how much you can sell it for. So you put it on eBay and find out it's worth about six bucks, you know. And you're like, oh, you know, so that, that collector's edition of Rambo movies on VHS tapes, yeah, not worth much. That Nicolas Cage pillow that you picked up at the flea market, yeah, give it to the dog, you know. My mom, she collected dolls and teacups, and a while back I, I did the whole eBay search thing and found out that they're really not worth anything. They're just now collecting dust, but they're sentimental, so I won't get rid of them. You know, I, every now and then I like watching the show Antiques Roadshow on PBS, and it's kind of fun to see what people bring in, and they line up and wait for hours to see if their, their item is actually worth anything, and, you know, and it's always like, hey, I got this at a garage sale, or my, my, great, my great aunt's sister's best friend got it at a garage sale for three bucks, and they find out it's worth $3,000. One of my favorite episodes of Antique Roadshow is where this old Air Force veteran brings in a watch. I mean, this guy looks like a hippie. He's got gray hair down to here. He's wearing a headband, a bandana, and he brings in a Rolex watch. But it's not just any Rolex watch. It's a Rolex Cosmograph Oyster Edition watch, which until this episode, I didn't know what that meant. But he bought it new uh, when, he, when he was stationed overseas on base, bought it new in 1971 for $345, which was a big deal back in that day. It was, it was a month's salary. But he, he bought it and just tucked it away. He literally put it in a safe deposit box. And now he kept all of the original packaging. He kept the boxes, he kept the receipts, the brochure that came with it. Every uh, true Rolex comes with a certificate of authenticity. He had that, and even the sticker on the back of the casing was still there. And it's never been worn. He, he said he would take it out every now and then and look at it, you know, and then put it back and put it back in the safety deposit box. So now his $375 watch in 2020 when the show aired uh, is valued between $500 and $700,000. I'm like, I'm not a financial advisor, but that's a pretty good investment. You know, a half a million dollars on the low side of what somebody is willing to pay for a Rolex Cosmograph Oyster Edition watch. So go home and check your watches, see what you got. You might have half a million dollars sitting in your dresser. You know, the, an investment like that impacted this guy, obviously. But Journey, God has invested in you and is heavily invested in you. And your value is seen in the price that God has paid for you. 
And what is that price? His one and only son, Jesus. Why? Why would he pay so much? Because he wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you to practice a religion. He wants a relationship with you. And the price was so severe because sin had to be dealt with. And the body and blood of his son had to be given, had to be shed, had had to hang on the cross for us. And that kind of investment impacts us. I mean, why would God give that kind of investment? Why would he put that kind of investment into you and then not supply us with all that we need to accomplish his will? Why would he rescue us from sin but not give us the help to, and to deal with the struggles that we face? Why would he give us the, the Holy Spirit but withhold the Spirit's strength? See, God gives us this complete investment. And I love how Jesus puts it. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, uh, Jesus says it in very simple words. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you kingdom. It doesn't say it's, it's your employer's obligation to pay you, or it's, it's, you know, he's saying it's in God's nature. It's his deepest delight. You know, he's like a, a dad who takes delight to take care uh, to care for his kids. And sometimes we just need to hear that we are God's greatest achievement. Sometimes you just need to hear that, that you are God's greatest achievement. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that we are created in God's image. You know, but I know we, we go through life, we don't feel lovable, we don't feel valuable, we don't feel worthwhile. But if that's ever where you are at, then look back at these words from Romans and look back at those words from Luke chapter 12. See, God is like a compassionate shepherd. He's like a tender father, an all-powerful king, all wrapped up into one. And you know what? He is on our side. So why worry about whether you are loved or not? The next question that Paul asked to drive home this fact that we have an unbreakable tie to Christ is why worry about judgment? We pick up in verse 33 where he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Those verses tie back to the very first verse of chapter 8, where it tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I recognize that, yeah, people judge. It's in our nature, unfortunately. You know, we go through life, we have evaluations at work where we're like rated and ranked and we're given these areas to work on and our strengths and weaknesses are pointed out. So we're evaluated at work, we're evaluated socially, we're evaluated professionally in all different kinds of ways. So those feelings of inadequacy, they can creep in at times. And the things that have been said to you over the years, maybe by a parent or someone close to you, those things stay with us. And then we go through the whole self-judging and self-evaluation thing, and we criticize ourselves 
We go through the whole comparison game. Well, the core, a core piece to overcome those feelings of inadequacy is just understanding that you have a heavenly Father who approves of you. You know, he, he not only likes you, but he has thought that you are worth saving and demonstrating his love for you. So God declares us justified in his sight because of the work that Jesus has done. And he has declared a purpose over you that's greater than anyone else thinks or says about you. So I, I, I get it that people judge, but God, he justifies. And the judgment for our sin was placed on his, on his son. So the one who will judge us, the scripture tells us, he's already died in our place. And the one who sits on the throne who will judge the whole world, he's bore our punishment. His body shows the price in the holes in his hands and feet and the spear in his side being hung on the cross. So when we place our life in his hands, when we say yes to Jesus, we can't be condemned, Scripture says. And now Jesus is interceding on our behalf based on his work. He's the one going to our defense. And so Paul reasons, since we can be sure that God has, has accepted us, why would we be worried about anyone else's approval? Why would we struggle with feelings of guilt or inferiority or condemnation? Your worth is incre has incredible value because of who God is, because of what God says about you. So here's a homework assignment for you this week. Each morning when you get up and look in the mirror, you know, say to yourself, Jesus, I am who you say I am. And every time you have those feelings of inadequacy eating at you or feelings of doubt or wondering if you are valuable, say to yourself, Jesus, I am who you say I am. In John chapter 8, Jesus confronts a group of self-righteous men who have, who have uh, caught a woman in the act of adultery and they, they drag her before these men. And according to their law, they were uh, legally bound to stone the woman to death. And the, the woman is thrown before them and she's kneeling or lying on the ground and she's probably waiting in terror to be hit by the first rock, smashing into her, knowing that she'd eventually be maimed and killed. But nothing happens. And she looks up and, and the men are all gone and there's probably the surprised relief going on inside her. Because they've all been confronted by Jesus' challenge to their own sinful lives. And Jesus says in John 8, verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. When I read Romans 8, I think we get that same sense of surprise, relief. You know, we, we look at ourselves and, and we look at God and we're like, really, you're not going to condemn us for those who are in Christ Jesus? And that leads us to, to the last question that Paul asks and puts before us, and that's why worry about the love of Jesus? 
And this is where he kind of just breaks into this praise. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, as I was studying this passage this, this week, I, you know, I noticed that verse 35 begins with the word who. And I normally wouldn't think of using the word who with things like famine and nakedness, danger or sword. I mean, those were more of a what than a who. Those are situations, those are circumstances, those are inanimate objects. But I think Paul wants to set those things up and contrast them to a greater who. Because no matter who is against you, we have a who on our team that's bigger and stronger than any who on their team. To put it this way, the who of our salvation is greater than the who of our opposition. The ultimate, I mean, this is, when I read this, this is the ultimate, my dad can beat up your dad throwdown in the schoolyard, you know? It's like, yeah, my dad's bigger and stronger. And this is like, totally, that's what I thought of when I read that. You know, but we still face those situations, don't we? We still face those oppositions. I think that's why Paul quotes in there uh, from Psalm 44. He quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, as a reminder. It's like, you you know this happens to Christians because he says, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And sometimes I think we go through life and it's like, yeah, I'm feeling like that sheep. I'm feeling like getting slaughtered here, Lord. And some of you are living that right now. It's like, Lord, I'm, I'm feeling it. Well, if you're living in that dark place, that desperate, that hopeless place of Psalm 44, I think the Paul, Paul puts it in this text to know that it doesn't have to ruin you. If that's you, then you are the, precisely the person that Paul is writing to. Because our, our Psalm 44, those days where we feel like we're getting slaughtered, can get swallowed up by Romans 8. Our Romans 8 is bigger than any Psalm 44, verse 22. Because we, because we have a greater who, the Scripture says, we are more than conquerors. Literally, in, in the original language, it means we are completely victorious. We are mega conquerors. We are super conquerors. I like how John Piper uh, explains this verse. He says, a conqueror defeats his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates the enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe, but one who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. And scholar N.T. Wright, who's a brilliant thinker, he writes regarding these verses. He says, look what God has done. Look what the Messiah has done and is still doing even as we speak. Look around and see the many things that threaten to separate you from the powerful love which reaches out through the cross and resurrection. Look around and see that they are all beaten foes. 
And then Paul breaks into this ultimate praise at the very end, verses 38 and 39. And he says, For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. Can, can you just sense the praise he's going through? He's like, listen, everything he can think of, and none of that's going to separate us from the love of God. He's saying there's no dimension of reality that we can imagine or think about that will frustrate God's care and God's love for us. He says, yes, we're going to face struggles. Yes, we're going to face opposition. Yes, we're going to feel like we're, like we're sheep going to be slaughtered on some days. But all of those things, they can only affect your situation. They're only circumstantial. They can't touch who you are in Jesus Christ because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to invite the praise team back up this morning. And, and here's, here's, kind of, here's where we land with it all. To sum it up, we can say God's purpose is unchangeable. His power is unchallengeable. His love is unconditional. So there's nothing that we have to fear. You know, when, when Peter Denica got on that boat to sail for America, he just wanted to get from point A to point B, like I said. Like I said. He just wanted to take that ticket and get his feet on American soil. And when he discovered that the price of his ticket included those meals, he was a changed man because he discovered what was his. And later in life, you know, God used him to change others' lives because Peter Denica grabbed a hold of what was his in Christ Jesus. He discovered the riches of Christ and he went on to share and tell that to other people. You know, sometimes I, I think we look at our faith as just that ticket into heaven. It's like, yeah, Jesus is my Savior. It, here's, here's, here's my ticket. You know, but knowing what we have in Christ can really drive us forward in mission. You know, we have this unbreakable tie to Christ. And that unbreakable tie can move us forward because it can lead us to worship. It can lift us from despair. It can embolden us for mission. It can move us forward to face each day and move us forward to live on mission for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for just the love that you have shown to us through your son Jesus. Thank you for this unbreakable tie that you've given to us in and through Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, may that tie just move us forward each day. May that tie, that unbreakable tie, move us forward in living on mission for you. And Lord, may all that we do be for your glory and praise. And that's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.